Okay, shall we get started? All the holiday jingling is over. Um, I have been hearing rumors uh, from some of our leadership that this lesson was kind of heavy and hard and difficult to understand, that there were a lot of things in there, and I, I know that you, you're looking at me and you're thinking that, that I'm gonna clear some of that up, but I, this, is, this is more the reality right here. Uh, the writer of Hebrews says, we have much to say about this, but it's hard to explain because you're slow to learn. <laughs> Whoops, I guess they saw us. So our author, Leah Adams, is actually pairing those two sets of verses from Hebrews 12, which is hardy and heavy as it is, and then from Hebrews 5:11 through 6:12, which she says are the most difficult in the Bible. So I drew the short straw as teacher today. Um, yeah, even the author, the, the uh, editor's notes say in there, you know, many Christians do not share the view of this author. And, um, well, if that isn't enough to drag you down, how would you like to be me? <laughs> so I felt like I needed a little cheering up, so here we go. She says that um, this is like a pep rally for the, for the Hebrews. And you remember that the, the Hebrews are people who have known their, their faith, their Old Testament faith, and have come to faith in, in Christ Jesus, but they're in hard times, and there's a lot of things weighing them down. It's, you know, it's, it's fourth and down or something like that. I don't even do football, I'm making it up. I was a cheerleader. So you're gonna do this cheer with me, ready? Give me an F. Give me an I. Give me an X. What's that spell? Yeah, fix. I wanted somebody to fix this lesson so I can understand it. But also, I, I was focusing on the word fix, which is in the, the second um, verse, which says fix our eyes on Jesus. And I figure if we all fix our eyes on Jesus, the big fix will come to us. Amen? Let's go ahead and pray. Uh, Lord, open our eyes so that we can see what you're trying to say to us, our ears so that we can understand and discern, and our hearts so that we can um, take them in and make them manifest to your glory and for our good. Um, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so Jesus is our author and perfecter. So let's look at some of how he is going to fix things. I, I, uh, I did land on this word, and I know that Denise says she's a wordsmith. I'm somewhat of a wordsmith, but I stick to English most of the time. So here we are. Um, so these definitions are some that are going to guide our course here on your worksheet and so forth. Now here's the deal. I went over teaching like by double last time. So if I don't finish, you know, everything you need to know is outlined on your sheet. I'll just run away and be done, you know. But I really want you to see that these attributes of the great fix, which is Jesus himself, are going to be made manifest through some of our readings, some of them overlapping each other. So uh, one definition, to hold or direct steadily, to capture, as in focus, as in to fix your eyes. To repair or mend or cure, to restore, like the doctor fixed him up. To set in order, to adjust or assist, like fix the rug so she wouldn't trip, or fix my microphone so it didn't hang out my back end like a tail, which a friend did for me this morning. To get ready or prepare, like I will fix lunch or I am fixing lunch. Or as Rhonda might say, since she's from Texas, fixin'. Fixin' to go, fixin' to do. Uh, and to make firm, stable, or attached, to fix or affix, and those are the definitions out of 16 of them that Merriam-Webster gives us that we're gonna focus on today, all right? 
All right, so um, right off the bat, we get um, the fix your eyes in Hebrews uh, 12. He says, you know, fix your eyes upon Jesus. So um, I want to tell you a little story about this building. You ever seen this building in downtown Chicago? Um, it used to be called the IBM building, and it had giant letters on it that said IBM, which is how you knew it was the IBM building. But when I was about 20 and living in Northwest Indiana, I worked for um, an agency that had sent me to um, IBM school to learn the Selectric. Anybody in the room remember a Selectric? Yeah, some of you old people. Help your elbow up. I know it's sore. Yeah, yeah. So the Selectric was a precursor to the word processor, and I was really bad typist, so this was going to not be a good scene altogether. I was young. I was not full-time employed in this place, but I got the opportunity to go to Chicago and learn how to use the Selectric. The problem was I didn't even know how to go to Chicago. Like, uh, we had a train in Northwest Indiana, and you could go to the train, but I had no idea where the train was. I didn't know that when you got to the train station, there was a big arm that came up and down, and you had to put exact change in something, which I didn't have, and a line of cars behind me did have. I had to get out of my car and get change from the guy behind me because I had a fresh, shiny 20. Then I got my car parked, missed my train, got to Chicago, came underground outside where somebody had told me to walk east, west, north, or south. I don't even know what direction it was. It might have been to Mars because I had no idea which one was east, west, north, or south to get to this location. And I wandered around feeling like, you know, country bumpkin for a long time, at least a half an hour, and I was sweating <laughs> and feeling really stupid and seeing all these business people with their high heels and their briefcases, and I finally asked this man if he could please help me find the IBM building. And he took my shoulders like this, and he turned me around, and he pointed, <laughs> IBM. It was right there. It was right there. But I had my eyes on me and my mistakes and my failures and my lack of and I don't knows and what am I going to do when I get there and it's so late and and all of the problems, but when he pointed me to the IBM building, I just walked toward it. Now, I had to cross the river twice. I still can't explain that. <laughs> but I did get there. I did get there. So every time I see that building on 330 North Wabash, I am reminded of um, fixing my eyes on Jesus. Um, it's a very um, important posture replicated by Peter on the water until it wasn't. Do you remember? Peter walked on the water with his eyes on Jesus. Jesus invited him out of the boat. He's like, I see you, I'm doing it until I'm not. And then, beautifully done, when Jesus looks up to heaven, to his heavenly Father, and he's praying for himself, you know, and seeing his heavenly Father and, and knowing that, that everything is fulfilled in him and he's ready to go. And then Stephen, the first martyr in the book of Acts, after having given an, an amazing um, tutorial on all things Old and New Testament and their fulfillment in Jesus and how the Pharisees and Jews that are listening to him have missed the point. They begin to stone him. And while he's dying, he looks up to Jesus and says, I see you, Jesus, sitting at the right hand of the Father. And he forgives those that are stoning him the same way Jesus forgave those who did. And that only comes when your eyes stay fixed. So um, I always say, uh, if you don't know where you're going, you're going to end up somewhere else. And so today, I hope we don't end up somewhere else. All right, we get into the topic of discipline, which feels a lot like this, right? So the first fix is my fix, fixing me. Discipline for disciples. Now, the word disciple means learner. Raise your hand if that applies to you. Okay, you're well outside of the reach of my ruler, so you're safe. 
But discipline isn't always uncomfortable, but we tend to think of it as uncomfortable. There can be the discipline of just getting up in the morning and having a quiet time, or the discipline of being thankful at this time of year, or the discipline of, of reading scriptures all the way through the Bible. These are good disciplines, but they do require some sort of an exchange of freedom or exchange of time. It doesn't have to always hurt, but sometimes it does hurt. And some of the words in our readings this week do hurt a bit. The, there are some hard words for our soft theology. Now, would you consider yourself a theologian if you're sitting in this room? I know you're not going to raise your hand because you're like, what if she calls on me to say something, right? But let me just tell you, if you are a person of faith who is striving to understand how your faith is practical to your life, that is the theology that you are bearing. And if your theology is weak, your walk is also weak, not to mention your witness. So Hebrews writer has some hard words for us to get tough on our theology, to know what it is we believe. And so let's listen to some of what, they, what he says. Now, the first thing that says that feels a little painful is that, is that um, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Oops, no, we have not yet resisted. We have not had to have the discipline of shedding our blood. But um, we do get the discipline of, of a son. Now, when I was growing up, spanking was done. When I was raising my kids, spanking was less done. And I think spanking is not done at all right now. Um, but I wouldn't have called that my, own, my only discipline from my parents. My parents set goals and expectations and gave me rewards and consequences. Some of them hurt, some of them were pleasurable. This is the full breadth of discipline. It says in Hebrews, my son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. You remember later in scriptures, in be holy as I am holy. Well, this is the means to that end. Endure hardships as a discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you're not disciplined and everyone uh, undergoes discipline, then you're not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined, disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. I pray, Lord, that we are being trained by it, that we are growing up into the image and likeness of our Father and that our behavior is reflecting the discipline, the training, the teaching that he has given to us. You're here today, so I'm assuming some of it is rubbing off. If you want to know the best way to learn to teach theology or get settled on what it is you want to tell other people, sign up to be a teacher. I guarantee you, you will have to train and think about what does it mean about what you believe and how you apply it. Carolyn Custis James uh, wrote a book called When Life and Beliefs Collide. And it is about the treasure of knowing your theology. And I want to tell you this. Theology is not a thing or a subject. It is a person, and his name is, everybody say it, Jesus. Our theology is Jesus. What he reveals to us, what we spend time from him knowing, will dictate how we walk out our theology in life. 
The writer of Hebrews tells us this, grow up. It's not okay to stay the same way as you were when you were in fifth and sixth grade or five and six years old. He says, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity. And then he lists some of the things that are the elementary teachings. Repentance, faith, instructions about baptism, laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead, eternal judgment. Okay, those are challenging topics, are they not? Now remember our author is speaking to the Hebrews. They would have already known about repentance. They had a whole temple structure having to do with repentance. They would have already known about faith. They had the Ten Commandments and the example of the Hebrew Hall of Famers telling us about faith. They already knew about baptism. Remember, John, who preceded Jesus, conducted a baptism of repentance. They knew about the laying on of hands, commissioning leaders. They knew about the resurrection of the dead because they were debating it with the Sadducees. The Pharisees believed, the Sadducees didn't. That was a, that was a thing they would have known. And they already knew about eternal judgment. These are the things that are also true because they are made full in Christ, amen? These, they're, so, but these basic things, if you stay there, you have not necessarily proceeded into the place where that information becomes your activation. That theology becomes your walk. Now, is it possible, do you think, to know about God or about Christ and not know Christ himself? Read the words up there. Let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken on to maturity. You know what maturity is? Knowing Christ and his indwelling and living like you believe it. So we are being called not to just live our elementary faith. And for me, it wasn't a Hebrew background. It wasn't, I wasn't an Israelite. I didn't know the temple structure, as you know from my last lecture, I had to learn it. But what I do know is four spiritual laws. I came to Christ through Campus Crusade. A friend shared with me these four spiritual laws. And if all I knew from 30 years ago were those four spiritual laws, shame on me. Because the job right now is to grow up into my faith. We can stay in a church for a really long time. We can understand the traditions. We can understand the processes. We can understand the regulated practices. We can understand the old VBS stories. But that's not where we're supposed to stay. We're supposed to grow up. Philippians, Paul says to the Philippians, all of us who are mature should take such a view of things. Let us live up to what we have already obtained. What we have already obtained as Christ followers, as believers in the one true God who came and lived among us, died and resurrected, is that he lives within us we have already obtained his life and his everlasting life in it. Now let's live like we believe it. Romans 12, 2 says, Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good and pleasing and perfect will. Well, I don't know about you, but that takes a lot of practice. Because every once in a while, I have no idea what God's good and pleasing and perfect will is in regarding my specific circumstances. So what do I do? Oh, well, I, I have to press on. Philippians 3, 14 through 18 says, not that I've already obtained all this or I've already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, 
I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. And further, all of us who are mature should take such a view of these things. Philippians 2.12, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You know what that looks like? Practicing to give a talk at Women's Bible Study on a Tuesday morning. <laughs> Teach somebody, and you will work out your salvation with fear and trembling because you will not want to grieve the Holy Spirit. So <coughs> we know about fixing ourselves to the extent that we are willing to be obedient to do so and to be disciplined to do so. Now the big question is, and it is a question, and it's a question mark on your page. Can we fix others? Have you wrestled with this? Do you have someone with an issue in your life and you keep thinking you can fix them? I don't know if any of you read the Enneagram book, but I'm a number two on the Enneagram, which makes me a helper, which makes me think I am everybody's Superman. And if I'm not there yet, I'm on my way to save the day. I want to fix things. And when I read about a particular problem, I might read it four different times in four different circumstances so I can come up with a solution and I can hand it to somebody. That makes me happy. But it also doesn't work because <laughs> it's not mine to fix. But there are some things that we are called to do. Are we our brother's keeper? Said Cain of Abel. Am I my brother's keeper? And the answer is, uh-huh. Uh-huh. Because... Bible gives us these bad examples, and Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews, gives, reminds us of these in both those two sets of scriptures. We have Cain and Abel. We know that, um, you know, Cain could have uh, supported Abel in, in his gift and could have been thankful for it or learned from it, but instead he killed him. So there was a bit of um, envy that led to sabotage, that led to murder. And then we know about Jacob and Esau, brothers with a rivalry, who did whatever they could to steal the blessing, and one who took it so lightly that he sold it for a pot of stew, and one that understood that the only way to get it was with conniving. But then there are some, and there's the parable of the prodigal, those brothers. Now that's a story, but in that story we got the, the younger brother going wayward, and the older brother jealous that he came back. So we may not be able to be someone's rescue, but we can certainly learn not to create their downfall, not to throw stumbling blocks in between them, not to let bitterness rise up and um, taint our relationships. Hebrews 12, 12 through 17 gives us another good example. This is a picture of Ruth and Naomi. You'll find this story in the book of Ruth. Strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. Make every effort to live in what? With everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. Bitter roots for Cain and Abel, bitter roots for Jacob and Esau, bitter roots for our prodigal. Does anybody remember what Naomi said to call her? She said, call her Mara, which means bitter. And Ruth came alongside Naomi, and she made level her path so her tired, broken-hearted mother-in-law could get to where she's going. And you know where she's going? Ruth says to Naomi, your people will be my people, your God will be my God. I'm following that tall building that you're following. 
So while we may not be able to fix the broken heart of Naomi Mara or the broken circumstance that led to a person's intersection with your life, we can at least make the path smooth. We can level the way they walk and make sure that we're not in any part of their stumbling. And we can take care of first and second things. This is what I mean. Here's first and second things. Um, how can you remove the, the speck from your brother's eye until you have removed the plank from your own? First remove the plank from your own eye and then help your brother remove the speck from his. First things first starts here. And then we can manage those weeds and bitter roots. There are so many scriptures about weeds and bitter roots and things taking over. Um, Matthew 13 has three right in a row of parables about the weeds that are being threshed out and burned up and um, um, uh, bundled so as not to, to taint the other food, the other uh, crop. So scripture says in Hebrews, a land which drinks the rain often falling on it and that produces a crop useful for those whom it is, it is farmed receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed and in the end it will be burned. There are a lot of references to the things, the weeds in our life being burned at judgment. We want to attend to that. Now, this is the hard question, and it's maybe, it's one I really want to get to, if nothing else, and this is um, that question of, is somebody we love or somebody that we know in danger of losing their salvation or being burned with the weeds? And if you understand that the big picture, the guiding principle, the eye that, the, the thing that our eyes are fixed on is that Jesus lived, died, and resurrected so that none would be lost. We know that his heart is for all. Are there things we can do to say, no, thank you, I'm not having that, or worse? That, I believe, is what we're hearing in Hebrews 6, 4 through 6. He says this, it is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God, and tasted the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. Those are hard words. And there are many pages in our workbook trying to parse them out. So in lieu of doing that myself, I'm just going to read from you something I was able to uh, get from the Moody Bible Commentary, which helped me, helped me understand a little bit about what that meant. Tasted. The Greek word, which I won't try to pronounce, well, maybe I will, M-E-T-O-C-H-O-S, metakos, as in Jesus tasted the gall mixed wine, same word, sampled. Been enlightened, heard the news, academically knowing. I've been enlightened to who's running for the election. I've been enlightened to what the candidates are saying. Do I absolutely know and understand and take in to account all the nuances of those things yet? No, but I know about it. That may be something of what we talked about before shared in or being a partaker of the Holy Spirit. Now listen to me. Moses had a face-to-face -face conversation with the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. Everybody else was a partaker of it. You can be near someone who 
in whom the Holy Spirit dwells and benefit from their behavior. You certainly can, but that doesn't necessarily mean the Holy Spirit is indwelling in you. You can have partaken of the benefit of it as did the witnesses at Pentecost and at Saul's conversion when Saul was blinded on the road and the Lord is talking to him and the voice of the Lord is heard among others. Saul's the one who's converted. He was a partaker of the vision of the Spirit and tasted the powers of the coming age. Like Simon the sorcerer, you can say, wow, that Holy Spirit can do a lot of stuff. I'd like to buy me some. Or you can be like the people following Jesus that said, I don't know what he's about, but I sure would like some of that, you know, magic, some of that miracle. You can be a partaker or a taste the power of the coming age, the miracles of Christ, without still being, having Christ in you or having him be the fix of your eyes. One, one um, Moody commentary says, the word impossible combined with the depth of exposure to the Messiah and the repudiation of him in spirit of that full light seems to be supported, s seems to support the fact that if one has all of that exposure and still rejects the Spirit of God, they will never be again brought back to the point of repentance. And not necessarily because they can't be, but because they have a recalcitrant heart, a heart so hard that it is no longer willing to even come to the Savior, no longer interested to look up. The Bible tells us of the unforgiving, uh, unforgivable sin. Um, this always hung me up. It is, truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whosoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. And in context, our writer tells us in Mark, they were saying he has an unclean spirit. The setting of this particular proclamation from Jesus is that Jesus is um, casting out spirits and they're saying, are you casting out the devil with the devil? He says, I'm not the devil, I'm the spirit of God. You're missing the point. The spirit of the devil can't cast out the de devil. He'd divide the house against himself. He's saying, I, in I am the divine spirit of God casting out the devil. And they're saying, we don't believe that you are the Spirit of God. This reminds me of Judas. Uh, I've always struggled with Judas. There was Judas, again, seeing all these things, tasting all these things, sharing of the Holy Spirit, being in proximity to people who got it, having the affection and love and proximity to Christ himself. And when he sold him for 30 pieces of silver, he started to feel bad because he said, oh, I have shed the blood of an innocent man. Jesus did not repent for shedding the blood of God. He had remorse for shedding the blood of an innocent man. Those are not the same things, are they? Because the sin, when Satan entered Judas, the sin was, he didn't see God in, in Jesus. He wanted a ruler, he wanted some political gain, he wanted to be part of an awesome movement, but he didn't see him as God. And so it was easy for him to sell a man. Even though he remorsed of it, he didn't repent of it to God himself. He remorsed and didn't repent. And this maybe explains his blasphemy, his ultimate 
sin. Do you remember when Job was having so much trouble and his friends said to do what? Curse God and die? He, he would have, but he didn't because that would be the ultimate sin. But God alone knows. So in our lives, people that are acting prodigal, people who have been in proximity to us, maybe people who have even made a declaration of faith at some point and have fallen away, that's God's business. God alone knows the point of no return and believers should never consider anyone beyond his reach, said desiring God. They should continue to call upon all people to turn to Messiah Jesus, even those who seem to have apostatized. But at this point in the text, when it was said this unforgivable sin, the writer is exhorting those on the point of turning away, don't turn away, put your trust in Messiah Jesus, the perfect high priest who makes all those who come to him perfect. We are not following a good teacher, a rabbi, a man, a political movement, a social organization. We are following the high priest of heaven. And anything short of that makes our theology short of that. I'm gonna move on to the next fix, which is preparing, or like I said, fixing to. Living prepared. Do you recognize this picture and this reference? This is the picture of Mary of Bethany, sister of Martha, who six days before the final last supper, the Passover, um, broke open an expensive jar of oil. It reads like this from Mark. It's in all four Gospels, by the way. While Jesus was in Bethany in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, Why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, listen, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. This is Mary living in light of what she already knows and already is. My friend Pat Garda passed away about two weeks ago. Maybe you know her. She came to Bible study for a long time. And I went to her um, funeral because um, I was blessed to have Pat intentionally friend me she, I don't mean on the internet, <laughs> I mean in real life, she came to me and she said, I would like to spend time with you. And um, Pat is a huge resource, a woman of I incredible uh, prayer and faith and a background of teaching and very much like me at this age. And we would talk about things like that. Our husbands were very similar, our lifestyles had been very similar, but Pat, of course, was in a different season and I, I valued a lot what she could speak into me as far as um, wisdom for my, for my walk. And... Um, she died suddenly in her chair where she always read the Bible, and um, her son conducted her funeral um, the other day. It was a memorial service, and he had with him a box full of um, journals that Pat had been writing for many years, decades. And in the front of each journal, it said, in the case of my death, please give these to my children. This was a, a woman living prepared, 
And each of those journals was filled with, you know, prayers and, and anxieties and blessings and thanksgivings and poetry. Um, my name's in there. Um, what a blessing she was while alive and preparing for beyond. In her funeral, they, um, in her funeral brochure here, they have the Lamentations 321 through 26, and this is in the um, New Living Translation. It says, yet I still dare to hope when I remember this, the faithful love of the Lord never ceases, his mercies never cease. Great is his faithfulness, his mercies begin afresh each morning. I say to myself, the Lord is my inheritance, therefore I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who depend on him, to those who search for him. So it is good to wait quietly for salvation from the Lord. Living, fixing to go somewhere else. That was Pat. We are preparing for what already is and is not yet for us. For Pat, it's yet. For, for Pat, it's today. This is the day. For us, we've come to the Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. This from Hebrews, he's giving us a vision. He's giving us an IBM building of where we're going. We sang about that mountain this morning. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. Yes, Pat, you're singing to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteousness made perfect. This is what we're preparing to do. So our last fix is the fixed, is the fixation, is being affixed to the solid ground, like a house on a rock, Matthew 7, 24. There it, therefore, everyone who hears these, mine, he, these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on a rock. Hebrews says, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. 2 Timothy 2.19, God's solid, solid foundation stands firm, sealed with this inscription. The Lord knows who are his. He knows who, who, who we are, and he knows who we belong to. This morning as I was getting ready, this scripture was brought to mind, it being election day and all. So I'm going to use this as our closing prayer. It's from 2 Peter 1. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. For this very reason, here it is, add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge, self-control, and to self-control, perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, mutual affection, and to mutual affection, love. That's theology. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they've been cleansed from their past sins. And here's the final. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, my sisters, Make every effort to confirm your calling and election. Make every effort to make your election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we all say, Amen.
10.02, I'm only two minutes late. 